episode of Relative Pitch. Um, I am Lauren Green, joined by my co-host, Michael Brown and Anthony Morris. Hello, fellas. How are we doing this week? I missed you last week. Ah, yes. We took a little break for Easter. I hope everybody had a great Easter weekend. Um, it was nothing but greatness. Michael, you said you didn't? No, I said I did. I got paid. Oh, there you go. Hey. <laughs> okay. Uh, Anthony, don't come at me. We've already had this debate multiple times. Every time I'm like, I got a gig for Easter. Anthony's like, oh, look at me. I'm gonna get well, do you even know, do you know the meaning of Easter? Uh, no, but I know the meaning of money. Oh, no, you done. Christians. Let's not even do all this. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, over this past, or I guess it'll be the week before um, when this is released, but we had a few, a few deaths that happened over like over the past week. And one was, you know, DMX, who we will talk about later on with our, in our interview with Garrett McQueen. And the other was Prince Philip. Okay. So what was interesting about Prince Philip, one, one thing is if you're on Twitter, if you saw any recent pictures of the man, it looked like he was knocking on death's door. Okay. So it, it, the man was 99. Um, it was, it was about time, you know, it was just a very natural thing. Right. And so somehow you knew that all of this was going to get put back on Meghan Markle. And it was only a matter of time before they figured out exactly how they would do so. And the story, I don't know if y'all saw, but there was an article on Vox that talked about how the British tabloid was making the death about Megan and how basically they said her interview with her and Harry's interview with Oprah and everything they were talking about with the royal family put the pressure on King Philip that, or sorry, uh, Prince Philip that ultimately led to his death. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when you're that age, I think you, for the most part, you just go ahead and say it was, you know, you're 99. I think it was pretty a natural, you know, passing. But I mean, were you were you surprised that this is kind of what the British media spun this out to be? Not at all. <laughs> I mean, the media has been on, they're finding the littlest things to come at Meghan Markle from the get-go. So this is not surprising at all. I found it disgusting. Let the man die, okay? Let him die. He he looked like he was dead for the past six years that I've seen the man. If you've seen him, he looked like, I don't know if y'all have ever watched the Underworld series, but he looked like a good old lackey. That's what he looks like. Oh my gosh. Um, And if you haven't, just look it up. It's right there. That's what the man looked like, okay? And we all know he asked about that the, the baby's color, the skin. Ooh, we knew. knew. You knew. You knew I, who it was. I don't find it surprising from a people who have put up this family and housed them and paid for their thing for how many years now? And there, I, 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 that and also a family who killed uh, Diane. I said it. I'll say it again. Thank you. Diane. Princess Diana. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's just Diana. Diana. I was saying, and that's on period. Oh, ah, he said Diana. Diana. Yeah. Now, the, the well, the crazy thing about it is, you know, we we are not subjects of you know the 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 Queen of England or you know the 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 royal family, you know. So it's crazy how um, uh, people I know they I think they expect for everyone to be, oh the. Oh, the passing and all. 
No one cares. Um, <laughs> no one cares. Just like at all. And I, I wish Pierce Morgan come ooh. at me, sir. Please do. Pierce Morgan is just the one, the sleaziest. He's like the Ben Shapiro of like uh of Brit Britain. Right. Like no yeah. one cares. Literally, Twitter was like, oh, this man died. Oh, the one that married his cousin. I'm glad he lived to 99. That's really nice. However, please move on. Like I said, right. underworld, give me very type of under the under the scene type of thing. And please. Ooh. I mean, listen, it's just, you know, unfortunate that they were just like, you know what, instead of if they want to celebrate him, go go celebrate him. But the fact that you're like, let's celebrate him by showing that it was Megan's fault that this man died. It's like this woman is pregnant and like chilling. Leave leave this woman alone. Like it's it's just crazy. But anyway. You know, we're not all about the the negativity here. There's some positive things that are going on in, for, for relative pitch in our individual lives. So, Anthony, share with the people, the you know, the amazing thing that you're going to be up to this summer. Yeah, so this summer, I was fortunate enough to be selected to participate um, at this year's University of Texas Austin um, Conducting Symposium. Um, I've been wanting this symposium since like I was a freshman in college, uh, but there were three things that were stopping me. Number one, uh, you had to be a teacher, you had to have a bachelor's degree, and you had to have like conducting videos and a good resume. So really four things. Um, so this, and let me just put this into perspective. There are other conducting symposiums it's really first come first up. This is one of the only ones that kind of have a screening process. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was my first year uh, eligible. So I just said, well, let me just go ahead and submit. Um, and they definitely kind of had me on uh, uh, um, on the string for a while because we were supposed to find out one Wednesday and then we get an email and it says, um, we have so many applications. We haven't gotten to everybody. So we'll let you know next Wednesday. And I was like, oh Lord. Okay. And like, I, you, so you have to send a YouTube video. And I looked, they haven't looked at my video and I was like, oh Lord, I just, I guess I didn't get past the resume round. It's all right. It's all right. I, this is my first time. I'm going to go on to the next. Um, and then the next Wednesday come, I don't hear anything. I was like, you know what? It's fine. I didn't get it. It's okay. It's okay. There's other places. And then um, Friday, I finally get the message, uh, the email, and it was like, the art of band conducting and rehearsing workshop. And I was like, this is the denial letter. I'm ready for it. I, and I was, mind you, teaching high schoolers. It was third period. And then I kept reading and it said, congratulations. And I was like, you're lying to me. You are lying to me. Um, but it's really good. Uh, it definitely was one of my big dreams, one of my things that I've, I've been wanting to do for a very long time. So now I'm around here, you know, studying some Mozart. Uh, this is Serenade in C minor, getting ready for that. Um, so I've been doing my studying and that's where I, what I'll be doing this summer. So I'm excited. I'm very excited. Our boy's doing big things. He's doing big things out here. The but fact that you immediately... You know, you I mean, look, she's talking about me doing big things. Let's talk about your big things that you are doing. 
Listen, we just out here. So, well, basically, you know, with the with the pandemic and everything, so many auditions have been uh, stopped or postponed. This for all the performance ones because, you know, why would they audition people when there's no performances going on? You know, so symphony auditions for the most part have been halted. Um, I think there are a few things that are now just now starting to happen back again. Um, but something that popped up uh, into my into my world was the idea of taking, you know, military band auditions. And now anyone who knows me knows I have never shown really a lot of interest in military bands before this point. Um, but again, it was a situation where it was like, well, they're doing auditions and um, it's, we all like, or, you know, there is a really good uh, financial packages when it comes to being a military musician, because, you know, you, if you're treated like an actual, you know, if you're a Marine or in the Air Force or whatever, you're treated like an actual member because you are, you are. I mean, you just have different duties. And so basically a Marine audition came up and I was like, ah, I'll do, I'll go do a little something, something. I wasn't expecting much from it, you know, but um, I had the audition Tuesday and to my complete surprise, uh, I was offered a position with one of the Marine fleet bands. And that was just very, it was something I really needed, you know, during all this stuff, uh, performance, thank you, thank you, uh, performance, um, the, my performance avenue was something that I did not necessarily feel as if I could see the progress as much as I could with my academic work and education work. Um, and so it was definitely something that I, I really felt like I needed. It was a really good boost to my confidence, not my ego, never that, but always just to my confidence and the feeling that I am progressing in some way. Um, that was a really, it was the first live audition I've had in over a year. And I, it felt like it, it felt like it was the first audition I ever had all over again. Um, but I am, I am very honored to have uh, had the opportunity to um, audition for one of the Marine fleet bands and get offered a position, you know, it's, it's very far into the future. Um, it's not, you know, tomorrow that I have to decide and get shipped off and everything, but it's a, it was an awesome experience. And, you know, another thing that happened is I got one of my first, one of the first real articles I've written um, just got selected for publishing here at my university in their big yearly um, journal that happens. And that was another unexpected thing because, you know, I love writing. I've always loved English language and just writing in general. Michael's like, heck no. Uh, but that's <laughs> it's something I got from my mom, her being an author. Um, it's just something that I guess is in my blood. And it was just, that was a nice, you know, um, thing that happened out of this week too. Cause again, it's something that I'm dipping my toe in that I'm getting confirmation that, yeah, that's, that's something you should keep doing. And I absolutely do think that's a field that I'm going to step in more, um, especially during, uh, all this, all the stuff that's happening now. So that's, what's going on with me. It's exciting. Um, got a recital coming up soon for lift music fund. If you don't know what lift music fund is, you go check them out because they're amazing. It is Emily Ang who runs that. And she's yeah. Fabulous, Love and she's working out there. They're they're all so dedicated, and they're amazing. They're doing these uh mini concerts for micro grants, and they're raising all these funds for um you know uh, kids, minority kids who are studying music to help them pay for you know whatever application processes, reads, recording equipment, whatever they need, and it's it's amazing. I think Anthony even worked with them. Uh, I have, and just working with them and doing, you know, on that side of things with the applications, it was so heartwarming to see um, and just be a part of that. Um, just and the stories that you read and 
it, it, I'm just so glad that they are doing this. They are making such a huge impact. And also, they have just now opened it up to all minorities um, yeah, now. Yeah, so, Pacific Islanders, I think, are now. Yes, literally, well. if you are yeah. a minority, they have opened it up, whether you're um, any by POC, you yep. are, please, if you need anything, go ahead and just apply those grants. They really do come in handy. So uh, hopefully we'll, we can actually get. Um, oh, absolutely. absolutely. Give us a little bit more about how it's going to go. Absolutely. Michael, what do you, uh, you got some stuff going on yourself <clears throat> over the summer, even through the semester and everything. So this summer, I, um, well, first I was accepted as an Easter music festival. Yeah. Finally, applied for two years, finally here, you know, progress. Yeah. Um, but the more important stuff that I'm doing is I'm working on two publications of education stuff, focusing in areas of, of students who don't have the money for private education. Um, because there's a raw talent that is missing sometimes in education and there's people who have the talent but don't have the training to make it into higher ed so that's what I'm working on with about three recitals this summer ranging from solo to chamber so I think I'm pretty busy <laughs> but yeah. catch me on the flip side <laughs> when I need coffee IV'd into my arm <laughs> oh yeah it's about that time where everyone's just kind of like yeah. you know just kind of dead but you know we're pushing through I'm, I'm proud of us for all the things we're doing as individuals and the things that we are doing together and all the great things that are going to happen in the future so that's that's awesome proud of you guys proud of myself mm-hmm. proud of us proud of all of us we're doing we're we doing the thing we are doing oh, the thing also I'm proud of us that we are here as well as to pitch as a group and mm-hmm. just because we are booked and busy over the summer does not mean you would not get good content because you will so please stay tuned oh yeah we're, we're going we uh will definitely uh put out some stuff about what you should expect from us in the summer it's going to be amazing it's going to be awesome we're super excited for that so no it, it doesn't just stop we never stop <laughs> you're always going to see us so get all right get right get used to us we're going to be here for a while <laughs> but all right i think we should uh, go ahead and transition over to our interview with uh, mr garrett mcqueen so let's I'll go Uh, we are here with Garrett McQueen. Garrett, it is so nice to have you here with us on Relative Pitch. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, y'all, for having me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was so wonderful being able to be a part of Triloquy um, uh, for my opus, and that's definitely something we'll talk about a little bit later on. First yeah, thing, you killed. You killed. <laughs> I love listening back to it. My mom was <laughs> awesome. Um, and so one of the things that's been happening, I think, in our community, music community, just in pop culture in general, is... You know, I think we're uh, mourning the loss of DMX and, you know, I've been following your, your, you know, your, all your socials and seeing what you've been saying and seeing what other people have been saying for, for you, who is DMX for you and for people who may not even know who DMX is, like what's, what's his legacy? What, what, who was he? Yeah, it's, it's weird to uh, finally get to that age where when we lose someone like that, um, that was a part of, you know, my, my upbringing. Uh, how there's a younger generation who might not even have uh, that that experience. So first of all, that's kind of weird for me to be experiencing right now. But uh, DMX um, for me was just one of the 
rappers that was on the radio i mean every everyone knew dmx for me this would have been i don't know when i was in middle school maybe early high school i think about um the tunes like the rough riders anthem i mean everyone just knew that and when it came to being in band half the bands were playing it so you know that's just one example um of his uh impact there but of course um DMX as, you know, uh, one of the founding members, you know, one of the uh, foundational members of the larger Rough Riders group, which, you know, of course, gave us Eve. I'm always um, shouting wow. out and honoring the, the women in hip hop. So, yeah, um, DM, DMX was was monumental. And I think, you know, from from all of the feedback across um, industries and across mediums, how we're seeing folks uh, pay their respects to DMX, I really uh, I really think speaks to how huge of a figure he is. We weren't really talking about the other person who passed away last week. We were talking about DMX. And I think that, I think that, you know, tells the story right there. I think it's plain to see there. It's funny you said that because we were, we were just kind of mentioning the fact that there was, you know, maybe, you know, two deaths and one was considerably more talked about, I think, in our community than the other. And it's for reasons, I think, yeah, like you said, DMX uh, was a major part of a lot of our lives. Even, you know, we're on the younger side, I think, you know, I'm 22 there. I think, Anthony, are you 23? Michael's 22 yeah, still. 23. You know, 23. DMX, and just like you said, DMX was on the radio. I remember uh, five, six, seven years old and DMX was on the radio. I'll never forget watching Like Mike. And even though it was only 20 seconds, right, yeah. DMX is right there. And I was like, oh, that's the song that's on the radio. So like it, he was definitely uh, had a very large impact and Eve, like come on that big rough rider thing and very, very important to our culture and um, seeing all the beautiful just uh, monuments, especially on Twitter, it like really went above and beyond. So it was beautiful to see, beautiful to see. And, and, and you, all, you also have to consider uh you know, the, the real lifeness of it, not just the celebrity-ness of it. There's the footage of when he was in the hospital, everybody coming outside of the hospital with their bikes, a la Rough Riders and doing all that. So it was really a uh, a community thing so um so 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 incredible I, I don't i don't really get um sad or sappy about it because you know his his music his legacy you know lives forever in, in that way so and and uh, i read this morning that um uh beyonce and jay-z you know they they're always coming in to save the day that's that's <laughs> why you know beyonce is 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 the goat uh, I read a headline earlier that they um, have bought all of uh, DMX's masters to his music, you know, and, and is giving it to the family for free, which means the family for generations and generations is um, is going to have plenty of money and plenty of resources to work with. So uh, a, a lot is uh, a lot is really coming out of this story. We, we can, of course, talk about you know what it means to criminalize addiction what what we need to do when it comes to actual rehabilitation you know there's that side mm -hmm. of the conversation as well but like, like i said all in all a legend who we aren't going to forget he has a slingshot ride video a couple of them on youtube y'all should watch y'all should look for those oh the slingshot ride sounds <laughs> terrifying <laughs> love the videos that have come out where he's uh he was in atlanta and he just uh, walked out at three o'clock in the morning and he's helping them mop and clean. And mm -hmm. he was at the uh, Albanian wedding and it was just beautiful. The only thing that I wanted to say was, I wish we would focus on a little bit more of just giving those people their flowers while they're still on this side of the exactly. earth. Yes. Um, because DMX, yes, like you just said about addiction. And I think a lot of people wrote them off, but 
I think that is probably one of the most worst things to do. Um, yes, he's a legend and everything, but just because he was going through his own personal struggles does not negate what legend he was. So whoever is listening to this, give the people who are on this earth their flowers while they are still here because you never know what's going to happen ever, ever. Yeah, it's been crazy because like, I don't know, maybe it's just the fact that we're, we've been like more in our own bubbles this past year with the pandemic, but all the people who've passed, it like it hurts even a little bit more, you know, or maybe it's a little bit more present um, in the, like with the loss that's happened, but it definitely shows that, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing I've seen, Anthony, is that people are saying we need to give these people their, like, their flowers while they are here with us. Like, why do we have to wait until they're gone um, to appreciate the, the legacy that they have left us already. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Like Rip DMX, um, is definitely, he, he is still alive in his music and all the things that he's done for our community still to this day. Um, so another thing that happened over the, I think, um, a few days ago, Colors of Classical Music on, uh, they have a, a Facebook page and they released a, um, a quote from Titus Underwood, who we know is the principal in Nashville <laughs> Symphony. And I really loved reading this quote. Um, and it's definitely, we can link it later on, but, you know, he talks about the fact that, you know, he's a 6'2 black male in this field playing oboe, um, which is not something we normally see um, in the classical music field. But what I really loved about this quote is that he talks about the conformity that happens when it comes to classical auditions. And this is something that me and Michael talk about a lot being orchestral players, you know, doing auditions. It's like sometimes you feel like you have to have a certain sound and be in a certain way. And there's obviously there's a danger in wanting all these people to conform to the same thing. We already don't like conforming. Like conforming is already just a, a word that we just don't even right, right. do, you know, use. And so I mean, I'm sure you you saw this post and what did you think about what he had to say about the subject? I mean, Titus is one of the homies. So, I mean, I've known Titus for a, a decade now. We we met um, out in Los Angeles. We both played with uh, the American Youth Symphony. So, you know, we, we've been having conversations like this for, for, for years and years. Um, where I think, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really thankful for Titus because I think we need folks in those sorts of positions having those sorts of, of conversations. When Titus and I come to the table, some of the things that we talk about are what we need to do for um, black folks and people of color outside of the orchestral institutions, outside of the of the machine that is classical music and how we can bridge those gaps. That That's where, where Titus and I um, uh, sit you know, mostly when, when we collaborate and when we work, but concerning what he's doing inside of the machine, I think that is um, so important and, and so vital and he's, he's paid the price for it. You know, uh, what's, what's public is public, you know, when it comes to his successes, but there he's had many, many, many challenges uh, along the road that have, you know, been more than what, the vast majority of orchestral musicians have to ever uh, have to ever deal with, you know, if, if, you know, the listeners can go and um, look up all of those stuff, but we're talking about things that involve um, uh, orders of protection and, you know, death threats and all that sort of thing. You know, that's how violent the space of classical music is. So that, that work needs to be happening inside of those spaces. I'm not one who, um, 
aspires, you know, to work inside of those spaces. So, you know, my, my, my opinions on those spaces are slightly different, but, you know, concerning the work that's being done for black folks within the orchestral complex, I think it's so important. And Titus is certainly um, at the, at the head of that. Do you think that there, the, that the change that we're fighting for, that we want that, you know, Titus is pushing for, do you think it's possible? Do you think it's likely <laughs> at least? I, I think, I think anything is possible. I think uh, what we're lacking right now is just a critical mass of people really willing to push. So when mm -hmm. I'm when I'm thinking about change in uh, orchestral structures, and this is something that Titus also talks about all the time, is um, reevaluating what it means to invest and support and maintain American institutions versus European replicas mm -hmm. that live here in America. So what what does that mean when it comes to repertoire? Well, that means we should not be centering uh, the European canon. What does that mean when it comes to what an orchestra is? That means we shouldn't be centering um, that Western orchestration, you know, limiting it to, to Western instruments. You know, I, I think that's really the change that needs to happen and we can do it, but we don't, I don't think we yet have the critical mass of people within the large infrastructures really, uh, really willing to, to knock the boat over like that. You know, there are lots of ensembles that have really revolutionized so-called classical music, uh, over the, over the decades, you know, none of those institutions, are the size of you know the Met or the Nashville Symphony or or anything in between? So I mean that that's what I think the next step is. I think it's possible because we have the examples on a small scale. I think we're just waiting to you know see it happen on that large scale. I know for me, like his postman, a couple of different things. But the biggest thing that pointed out to me because I can relate to it in my quarrel with classical music is like the homogeneous of sound is like. For trumpet players, you sound like this. This mm -hmm. will win you a job. And you go listen back when orchestras were actually becoming a professional means of living. Right. You could tell a Philadelphia from a New York. You could tell a Chicago sure. from a Cleveland. And that is what made it special. Like everybody's own hints of personality within it. Now it's just like one sound. And, yeah. and it's like, that's what for me is bringing down classical music slowly. If everything that sounds the same, why isn't there just one big orchestra that just does tours? Like at yeah. that point. What, just, what I what I struggle with there, you're a double reed player, right? No, I'm a trumpet player. Oh, you, oh, you play the trumpet. Okay. Well, what? Yeah, I I feel like you know being a double reed player, I I'm kind of torn there because mm -hmm. oboists and bassoonists, we do sound very different. Like that that is a that's sort of unique to you know our our instruments culturally you know and and just over time some of those sounds have been deemed better sorry better or worse than than others and you know sometimes i subscribe to a little bit of that i don't necessarily want to hear a recording with a super nasally bassoon player you know yeah. but for oh, yeah. some people that might be great and and that's fine but you know i'm i'm but but i definitely agree that just um, this this large scale assimilation of of sound, I think, uh, is a symptom of ult ultimately a large scale assimilation of thought when it comes to classical music. So I, I'll, I'll agree that um, broadening that up is uh, is necessary is a uh, is necessary. But at the same time, 
there, there's certain sounds I'm not trying to hear either. If I could be oh, honest. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> you, you need a certain quality of sound. Absolutely. Right. But and I think for Michael, I understand what he means because it's like, you know, you go into an orchestral audition and you know they're going to want to hear a certain type of sound. And um, I think it's uh, basically he's talking about this individualism within playing, like where everyone is mm -hmm. about the same quality, um, same playing level. But, you know, if everyone sounds the same, then, I mean, what, what are you really, what are you really going for here with these auditions? And that's, that's a really hard thing. Cause you know, it's all like, Oh, we'll listen to the recordings and just try to mimic the recordings. And, you know, thankfully my teacher, um, Christina Smith, who's uh, my, my past teacher at my old undergrad, she was really big on, you know, I always used to say, Oh, I just want to sound like you. And she's like, no, you want to sound like Lauren. You right. want to be the best version of Lauren that you can be. And she always pushed for me making sure that I wasn't trying to put myself in a box. She's like, that's no fun. You know, you have your, you're your own person. You know, um, I'm going to learn and play differently than any of my teachers that I will ever have. And I think that's the the beautiful thing about it. I don't think everyone should sound the same in general. Qual yes, there. So I don't want to hear a certain, you know, sound come <laughs> out of any instrument <laughs> at all, period. But see, again, the problem is the the repertoire that the orchestras are centering the mm. tradition that that music comes from is rooted in that sort of conformity mm. is rooted in that you have to sound like this so that's why we're at this dissonance because we're trying to figure out a way to show ourselves and be um uh individual artists in an art form that never lent itself to the individual. I think that's one of the shifts that we have to talk about when we're talking about changing up this repertoire. How can anyone's bolero, you know, sound any different at the end of the day if it was written as this thing and to sound like this thing and not to shit on bolero, but, you know, <laughs> just to say as, a, as an example of, you know, how, how this dissonance is coming in. We're trying to explore, you know, individuality. We're trying to uh, e explore uh, sort of uh, reframing it with, you know, with works of art that are very much in the box. And, and from my perspective, that's, that's sort of paradoxical. I love that you just said that because that kind of just blew my mind. So I mean, I'm going to take a minute to unpack that because the reason why we play the rep we do in auditions it reflects the rep that's played in the actual ensemble so of right. course like if it's the same kind of the same canon the european western canon it's that's all we're gonna be playing it's that one sound and that's crazy because it's like yeah if we had pieces that were being um you know that if you know omar thomas valerie coleman's kevin days were in the normal repertoire of symphony exactly. orchestra we'd be playing those in those auditions and we would be hearing a lot of different sounds and that's just I, I never thought about that. Let me that. give you a prime example. So when I was leaving um, grad school at USC, um, I, I was on my way to play with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, but a bassoon spot came open in the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, which, you know, plays the repertoire, but plays all different types of stuff. So their mm -hmm. audition list was, um, you know, pretty standard, uh, you know, with, with all the orchestral stuff, except <laughs> they put um, the bassoon part to the tune, um, sing, sing, sing. And I don't know if y'all know that, but the part is like, bum, 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 bum. So that, so that was one of the excerpts. Don't you know that that is what was knocking people out? That, and, 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 and that is the prime example. We have spent, we have spent no time really exploring the vastness of music, even just American music. And when it comes time to play it, when it comes time to swing an eighth note, that's what's stumbling us up. Everybody's uh, Polchinella is beautiful. You know, who can give me an eight bar improvisation on, at an audition? 
Mm. And that leads like I'm like over the summer, I'm doing research that's not forced on by the school. Like I love the research I have to do for school. But, I love that word forced on. Go on. <laughs> but like for me, improvisation and groove is from the Renaissance and Baroque and before. And that's sure. where like improvisation for me started. And then it got lost in classical music and it came back up in jazz. But like classical music, especially back then, is supposed to groove. And when you hear it and it doesn't groove, it doesn't sound right. But I don't know why we have lost that it doesn't groove in the improv. Like you have to be able to improv over classical music and that's a lost art form. So I agree with that. Well, I'll tell you why we lost it. So when, um, when, when we're talking about the uh, creation of an American society and, and American music, we're talking about a history that's, you know, built on the back of slaves. So as the Negro spiritual became blues, became, you know, yeah. gospel, became jazz, as we started to, you know, see more of these uh, so-called swung rhythms and that sort of yeah. thing, because it was black, it was separated from what was, uh, what was acceptable, what goes into the concert hall. So that's how we have the manifestations today of these two separate things called classical music and jazz under any other circumstances if you take racism out jazz would be our classical music in the same way that gamelan music is classical in and um the uh, pacific uh, in the pacific islands in yeah. the same way that a shamisen um is classical in japan a djembe in africa the uh hardangi fiddle in norway i could go on and on and on but because racism it has a role here in the United States. There was never a true recognition of what is American because what is American happens to be black. Ooh. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And I was gonna take it to the spiritual uh, type of thing as well because being a vocalist, when you get your repertoire uh, for these auditions, you never see a spiritual, right. ever. But when you get into the select group and then, oh, for a concert, you know, stopper for the, you know, the show stopper is a spiritual. And then we always wonder, why is that? Why does that sound horrible? Well, it's because in uh, voice lessons, none of those teachers teach them. Uh, when you're in the actual choir setting, it is always looked as, oh, this is just a closer. We're just going to do it that way. And we're going to move on. Never gets the full um, 100% as something like the Bach or something, right. you know, something like that. And that really became my biggest problem through undergrad was uh, really fighting that, that stereotype, that arc that I guess upper echelon classical music is, is that I'm sick of this. I'm tired of it and I don't like it. So I'm going to make sure you know that you finna spend enough time doing mm -hmm. this if you want me to be a part of this group right here. And on top of all of that, when they bring in the Negro spiritual as the showstopper, the two, three, four black people in the ensemble mm. have to be traumatized because mm. they're turning to them to teach mm. the whole choir the church sway, to ask Amen. them about this word, about this thing. So yes. you're putting labor on yep. members of the ensemble that A, aren't being paid and B, aren't there to, to teach. They're there to perform. So there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's levels that, um, that have to be dealt with. With. But I think as soon as we can, you know, reframe our uh, educational institutions, our schools, and ultimately our performance institutions to reframe what is American music and what it means to be an American institution of music, we can get closer to the spiritual just being a normal part of the of the repertoire because 
it is American music and highlighting American music and censoring American music is normal. And I like how uh, you said it's American music because that's what it is. However, because of racism, it is always looked at something else. Jazz, gospel, blues is looked at something else. What when, else is? What else is American music other than right. black music? I mean, exactly. tell me, but with the exception of music codified by indigenous people, of course, with that being the exception, what other music is inherently American? We talk about Dvorak's American Quartet. That's fine. It's American. It's Afro-American infused. Right. But the, the, the idea of the string quartet in that setting is not american you know not 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 indigenously in in that way so you know that that's that, that that's the bottom line of it and it seems simple to me but it's it's taken you know institutions a long time to really make that push to understand you know that equity is not just equity is pro black because um black music is american music that is you can't separate those two things so yeah i want to speak on that repertoire thing and but my, i know michael had something to say first yes can y'all hear me i'm sorry my internet is unstable yeah i know we got you um when you were talking about um having the um black students having to teach the repertoire mm -hmm. in those kids like that goes back to dr william lake and we're gonna we always reference him um <laughs> but he said a conductor has to do their due diligence no matter what the repertoire is and if you don't know your due diligence and know where it came from how the performance practices go what is the meaning behind it then you didn't do your due diligence you are not doing your first step of the job and that's right. for any musician like if i go like me and lauren are having a summer tour and we're doing this opera trio at the end of our recital because of the met and all this other stuff we're starting with uh portimiro which is like Monteverdi. Then we're going to the flower duet and then we're ending with summertime. If I don't educate myself on the little intricacies of like, I'm going to do some growling a little bit here. She's going to do like the classical version. I'm going to try to do like a little cornet jazzy version. If I don't educate myself in those intricacies within that, I'm not doing my due diligence of the first step of being a musician. As long as we're not attributing that tune to Gershwin. <laughs> Amen. Amen. That's all I have to say about that. Right. <laughs> yeah, but definitely something that I, you know, this has been a conversation definitely with me in my studio here is the the conversation of what's considered serious music, mm -hmm. um, and what do we consider the music that you know? Oh, you're doing a recital. Well, you sh you're probably going to be playing some Bach, right? It may be a French uh, conservatory piece, probably a no, you know, a big uh, European concerto or something, and then something. And then I stopped and thought about it, and I went, why? Why? What if I don't want to? Right. <laughs> First of all, what right. if I don't want to? What if I don't feel connected to those pieces in that way? What if I just want to do a, a full concert on, you know, do some Valerie Coleman, Alison Langan's Hole, some do some Kevin Day, do some Ben Horn, throw in some spirituals. And that, you know, what if I wanted to do that? But then, you know, I thought about it. And then I was like, the conversation that I think that would lead to with, you know, I don't know, the administration would not be a pretty one. The, um, conver I, the conversation it would lead to is from their perspective, that sort of recital 
isn't preparing you for the next steps in your career. Now, why is that not preparing you for the next steps? Because the institutions that students move to, you know, professionally aren't censoring that music either. So it's the onus isn't completely on the school. The onus is on the system that forces the school from its perspective into into certain boxes. I can definitely see the argument of, you know, them saying, you know, we we want so-called standard repertoire because we want to see your success. Well, in that, I think we have to challenge the fact that there is standard repertoire and that there are other you know institutions along the chain of institutions from student to professional that are also bound to that tradition and you know we have to do it together i and and that's where i struggle i I think that's not where i have the answers you know sometimes I, i ask myself well if all of the orchestras just you know only play black music does that mean the institutions will teach accordingly to prepare them for that should it be the other way around I, i'm i'm not completely there yet but that that's definitely where i think that conversation leads that sort of recital that you're proposing from their perspective doesn't prepare you for the next legs of your career and that's that's completely understandable like i can see that that argument and you know this is another conversation we've had before is well, it's not, you know, because you'll see concerts, oh, a concert of all female composers. Right. Or con- uh, e- evening with Black composers. And it's like that one thing and then they're done. And then they go back the next week to do full Bartok, Stravinsky, Schubert, you know, so you, and that's the normal, right? And so um, I think it's the, the push for equity where it's like, no, you don't have to have every concert, every single piece be like by a black, like be uh, pieces by black composers. Necessarily. Necessarily. I mean, if you want to do that, go ahead. <laughs> but just having it equitable or having it make sense in terms of the people who are here in, in the country, the like yeah, American music, if you're going to be an American orchestra playing music, you should play the music of, you know, your people, yeah. I would say. And I just want to be on record that I am proposing all black everything. Ah, I love that. I <laughs> love it. And honestly, I think that's why the orchestra scene have seen kind of a decline in the past. And I know at least our generation and the generation after that is because the orchestra has now become detached from mm-hmm. uh, the world and especially what's going on in America. I mean, just think about last year, last summer, Uh, with everything, with the political unrest and uh, the protests and everything, what exactly was the orchestra institution, what did they do for our benefit? And I was definitely looking and seeing, okay, did this orchestra say this? Did this uh, band say this? Did this choir group say this? What are they doing? How are they changing? And now it's been almost a year and yes, we're still in COVID, but I'm still seeing, you know, some performances, but their statement said, we are here for inclusion. We're here to do these reps. Okay, it's been a year and I still haven't seen any mm-hmm. progress in what your statement said last year. So where where is this? Did you just say that because yes. you wanted us to get off of your back? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll go even a level deeper. So since last summer, a lot of the institutions have been talking about diversity and hiring and, and, and those sorts of things. Many of those, not all, but, but many of those hires require candidates who can um, fit into those machines, who can abide by those 
structures that lead to you know the virtual virtue signaling and the and the uh doing nothing but making statements and not to say that you know black folks people of color that get jobs in these institutions you know aren't making changes as much as i mean to say you know we we can't diminish the fact that there are people for whom these structures do not work mm -hmm. and i don't think that those institutions are going after those people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even within within those pledges, within those promises to hire more people of color. Oh, I, I, there's there's so much in my mind, but I, I mean, right. especially especially these, hiring. right? The hiring. hiring, yeah, yeah, and because I think we're all and we're going um, the way our professions are going, we will be that next group who will be looking to get hired and everything. And I know I've had conversations with all of the, both Michael and Lauren about when they see me, what will they see? Mm -hmm. When they hear me, what will they hear? Because I am not someone who's just gonna sit around and just let you just go over everything. And it actually came up um, like last week, there was somebody I had uh, um, interviewed for a job. I didn't get it, but I saw the person who did. And I said, hmm, I'm not surprised. That is a person who fits in that role, who is mm -hmm. not gonna say anything to shake up the system, even though that system, that school has a lot of uh, debt to pay, especially to their black students. But they hired somebody who's gonna say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, this is how it is. Mm -hmm. And I know that the, our, our career is full of all of that. Um, and I think that leads us to this conformity uh, that we were talking about earlier is do I need to conform my ways to get a job and then shake it up? Or should I just come, let's flip a table and then let's fight. Let's, let's just do it. Because uh, part a good 55% of me is like, I'm ready to flip a table yeah. at any time. So it, it really just depends. Um, but I'm spunning this conversation just led right there, but that's exactly and I'll, I'll I'll flip it back slightly positive, you know, to to quote uh, the great Issa Rae, I'm rooting for everybody black. Yeah. If in some black people's experiences, you know, fitting into some of these cogs and acting a certain way or, you know, you know, d doing doing something that I might see as uh, code switching or, or or not progressive or or not activist or, or whatever. If that black person genuinely exists that way and wants to exist that way, hey, do your thing. I'm rooting for you. I'm happy for you. Right. My, my only dissonance comes in um, when we're talking about institutions, you know, strategically placing people of color as a means of, you know, X, Y, and Z. You know, the, the quick example, I'm sure everyone here is aware of the issue with uh, the, the Tulsa Opera. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about language that um, a, a soprano didn't uh, want to sing, uh, a, a black soprano. Well, I don't think that the, I don't think that knowing she didn't want to sing it was uh, important. I think what was important was that the opera company did not want to stage it. But, you know, so so that's what I mean, like how people of color are positioned to um, to to help fortify the opinions and the structures of these institutions that we see problematic, you know, so my beef is not with uh, folks of color within the machine necessarily. My my beef is with the machine and the the way that they use people of color to to continue their agenda.
Mm-hmm. Right. And, the, you know, um, from listening to, you know, your um, podcast, Triloquy, and the conversations that you have with your co-host, uh, Scott Blankenship, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, um, Scott. <laughs> those conversations are, I mean, I, I love, I just love listening to them and just hearing you both of your sides of these, you know, of, of these discussions. And for, you know, for people who may not have, um, who may not have listened, unfortunately, to your podcast, yes, I'm sure they will after this. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about like the conversations that you and Scott have on there. So uh, the foundation of Triloquy, what we're trying to do is normalize a refreshed view and perspective of the phrase classical music. We were talking earlier about American music. Well, when we talk about, when I talk about music that's classical, that's classic, I'm thinking about music that really forms a culture, that informs a culture. When we talk about hip hop, right? Earlier we were talking about DMX. We talk about classic hip hop all the time. We're talking about a classical music. We're just not framing it that way. So on the Triloquy uh, podcast, what we do is we take stories, news, um, experiences from the world, sort of unpack them and frame them within pieces of music that we deem classical. So yes, sometimes they're um is uh western european orchestral music on our show i would say about 60 percent of the time we're really talking about um the classical music of the day uh, music that speaks to today you know sometimes uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about country music you know which is one of the many um black originated classical musics of america so um through through all of that we try to uh draw the lines between the world how we're feeling different pieces of music and uh, every week also uh, features a, uh, a guest interview. You know, what I, what I have always been centered on um, in my career as a broadcaster, when I, even when I started in radio, was to do everything that I could to put people on or to highlight something that I thought was great or, or a conversation that we needed to have. So the, um, the foundation of the Triloquy podcast are the um, many, many, many people um, almost officially 100 people that uh, we featured on the podcast uh, awesome. as a means of just highlighting um, some of the other conversations and some of the other art that's um, happening in, in happening in the field. So, um, yeah, Triloquy um, is my baby. It was it was hard fought. There, there's there's a lot of conversations we can have about branding, about copywriting, about um, ownership and all of those things. It's definitely my full time gig, but. Um, I love it. I love it. And I'm, and I'm really grateful uh, to all of the people, all, the, all of the listeners, all of the uh, financial supporters and all of the guests that have continued to make it possible. Mm-hmm. And so uh, before or actually, Anthony, you go ahead before I, I go. So I um, first found you on Twitter and I like I immediately just fell in love. I was just like, oh, my gosh, she's speaking exactly what I was thinking, let me retweet, let me like, <laughs> let me, oh, he is uh, he is a co-host of Triloquy. Okay, let me go listen. And then I was like, Lauren, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. And then it's just so, it's, we always think the world is so big, but also so small at the same time. So the fact that you are here um, today is just like, wow, thank you so, 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 so much. I wanted to say that um, because just seeing you and just seeing you voice your opinion, um, and being a great influence for uh, Black musicians uh, coming up 
is just beautiful to see. And we are here to support you and all the things that you do. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We're rooting for everybody Black. Period. And <laughs> <laughs> real quick before you say something, I just looked you up on Twitter real quick. And this resonates with me because I'm doing some research about it. Unless you can transcribe the score to a symphony you've never heard before as you're listening to it, please don't try to sign light rap because you can't understand what they're saying. Mm. Like I've been this whole semester, I've been doing a research on Southern rap and the evolution of Dirty South within Atlanta mm -hmm. and how it all started and all that stuff because I have found I am in love with non-traditional music history. Uh oh, uh, Michael, we lost you for a second. Michael, what? Say what you said the last ten seconds again. I forgot where I left off. Oh, the uh, evolution of Dirty South rap. Yes. Oh, the evolution of Dirty South in Atlanta, and people try to sideline rap and hip hop as not a art form, but mm -hmm. because they one don't understand their experiences, nor do they want to understand where they came from, and two don't understand the intricacies or what goes into it, because it's like, oh, that's pop culture music that's not from where i'm from whatever no like half of these people don't understand like the song hey ya they're like oh right, this is fun right. dude. like it's just like it and then the montero that recently came out people like oh it's bopping oh they were mad they were like, very <laughs> upset they were very upset <laughs> me, like people are mad or people are bopping but does anybody truly understand what he's trying to come at with this song right it, right it's such a like furiating experiences past semester because I've been relying on Anthony because he's like, well, like this is his like what he grew up with and I yeah. am falling in love with it slowly because I loved it, but didn't have a true respect for it until I started doing the due diligence of research. So that tweet really was like amazing. I mean, I don't know what I was arguing with somebody that day, but you know, I, I think the, <laughs> just to put some context around that, you know, when we, when we, uh, we take hip hop or, or any type of music and find a reason to push it to the side because we don't understand what they're saying or that, or just fill in, fill in the thing here. Mm -hmm. My point is to the, the classical musicians, the so-called classical musicians who feel that way, y'all don't understand a Beethoven symphony fully as you're listening to that either. Actually, if you think about it, so, you know, there, there there's something else at, at, at play there, but, but yeah, I always get, every time I do an interview and someone says, so I'm looking at your Twitter, I get a little nervous. So <laughs> my heart stops for a minute. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, for me, the for, I think the first time I truly um, uh, encountered you and your work was the situation that happened with NPR. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I love that you just went, mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, reading about that, it was kind of an uproar. And at first, because I saw it and I went, what, now what's going on? And, you know, so what what exactly was the situation that happened with um, Michigan Public Radio? Um, uh, Minnesota Public Radio. Minnesota Public Radio, excuse me. Um, uh, you know, long story short, you know, uh, a big machine like that, and I, and I think it applies, you know, to uh, uh, orchestras and opera companies and that sort of thing, big machines you know, it, it takes those ships a little lo a little longer to turn. It, they're, they're not as agile. They're not as flexible. So when I came in and I saw programming that I deemed um, unacceptable, you know, I did everything I could um, to turn the ship as quickly um, as I could. That that ran in um, in contradiction to, you know, what uh, what other folks on the team 
and my supervisors sort of thought and believed. So, um, but, but, but at the end of the day, you know, I think when we're talking about change, when, when we want to be change makers, I think what we don't often think about is that in making change, you have to push something to the side. When we talk about um, diverse programming, that means something has to go away. We talk about what we add or want to add all the time. We don't talk about what is finally time to sideline, what is finally time to say, okay, enough of this or or enough of that. So, you know, that that's, that's where, you know, uh, my, my issues kind of, uh, you know, uh, in, informed my separation uh, from from that company. I, I don't mean to be cryptic as as much as I uh, just encourage folks to uh, not center the the trauma of it all. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, in in anyone who has uh, made great change or is trying to make great change has had some things happen along the way. You know, what would the story of Rosa Parks be if she you know weren't arrested on the bus? Right. What would what would the story of Martin Luther King Jr. be? if he weren't assassinated, but that's not, you know, why they're important. They're important because of the change they were trying to make. So that that's what I'm trying to continue to do. I just encourage folks to um, understand that um, it's the, the, the struggle continues and that I happen to have had a very high profile circumstance. There are many, many, many people in public radio and many people across the arts who have stories maybe similar to mine that will never be a headline you know you will just never know about that so yeah I'll, I'll always encourage people to think about that and to just you know try to focus on the idea that you know my story is one of many and we have to be a part of many stories to for 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 this change to happen but i'm i'm doing okay we'll see if i get back into um into radio in, in in that regard in the future yeah. but i mean but i'm still on the air you know uh, uh, one of the main ways i make my living these days is producing radio programs right here where i'm sitting i have um i have a show uh, nationally syndicated right now it's called the sound of 13 um mm -hmm. a show at the intersection of uh so-called classical music and the reconstruction era america so that 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 sort of idea the 13th amendment and all that sort of thing so wow. garrett mcqueen is still on the radio don't yeah. don't, don't be worried about that <laughs> yeah um, but but sometimes uh collaboration with certain institutions and your values don't don't always match it's it's a lot of privilege involved you know there are a lot of people who can't risk their job there are a lot of people with kids who you know got a lot on the line right. um with, with my privilege of being able uh, to be more flexible, you know, is a res was a responsibility for me to act. And, you know, wow. that act led to certain things, but it's a part of the journey. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that too. And I, what I really loved about what you said, you know, is your emphasis on, you know, the fact that you just happened to be in a situation that it did go pretty viral and it was a, a pretty big right. situation that happened. But then you highlighted the voices and the stories of those people who may not be, their stories may not get pushed, you know, to the spotlight like that, you know, the, the, and you also know this, cause we talked about on your, um, on Triloquy is the, the anthology that I'm doing that is literally working to be that, right. you know, a black centered, uh, area for people to share their stories and for people to understand the situations that us, uh, black people go through within these fields. Um, within this field in particular. And it's so important that we hear not only the the really major stories, but also the ones that, you know, the little things that 
pile up and pile up right. and pile up, you know, right. and you hit the breaking point. And I think that is so important to share stories, no matter how, how viral they go or not. And that's mm-hmm. definitely the purpose of things like this. And I think resources like this are necessary to push for the change that we're going for. It's like the whole pull the rug up so you can see it. You know, I mindset, if they don't know that it's happening, they don't know that it's happening. Um, then there's there. Why would they act on it? And, and let me add this, you know, one thing, maybe the big one of the biggest things I learned from the whole situation is that fame is trash. Like being viral is a lot. I think it's so easy for a personal story to just become a story, to just yep. become a headline that people are having thread debates about and arguments. And, you know, they have no idea that in that moment, I'm trying to think about how I'm going to pay my rent or I'm worried about my landlord actually, you know, and that was never an issue, but, you know, they don't know the story of my landlord knocking on the door saying, I heard something on the radio. Is everything going to be okay? You know, yeah. they don't, they don't, they don't see those aspects. They don't, you know, it's so easy for, a human situation to just become a theoretical situation so you know if I can offer anything is you know for anyone listening when you see any news story about any black person having been done wrong or something happening or before you turn it into a point of conversation Mm -hmm. um, think about the human beings and the human emotions that are tied to those situations it's so easy for that to be lost in the mix absolutely absolutely and you know um, another thing about, about you and the work that you do is the idea of being, you know, black centered and really pushing for, um, change in the field, like around uh, people of color mm-hmm. and, you know, the organizations you were kind of mentioning earlier, you know, um, we all know Sphinx orchestra and the work that they do, um, and other organizations that are really centered around this, this fight. Uh, what's your involvement with Sphinx and some of these other organizations? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, diversity organizations out there. There are far fewer Black-centered organizations. Uh, I think it's personally important for me to be involved with um, both types. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I'll say that, you know, just to preface that um, my work with Sphinx um, as a organization, I'm trying to remember the mission statement, um, you know, talking about uh, empowerment through diversity in, mm-hmm. in classical music, you know, the, the use of that word uh, diversity in those spaces, I find myself um, really being a, a champion for what it means to center blackness in your diverse practices, understanding why if you're trying to make diverse hires, why black people are the folks that need to uh, be uh, at the head of that in your in your plight for diversity. Now, when it comes to black centered organizations, you know, another group I work with the Gateways Festival Orchestra, this is an all black organization. So the conversations are a little bit different. We're, t- we're talking about ways in which we can be empowered in predominantly white spaces and ways in which we can empower each other to create more spaces that um, really uh, center blackness. So, you know, and and again, I say all of that because it's so easy for these conversations of diversity, equity, inclusion to be one thing, but those are three very different, diversity is very, very, very different than inclusion. And that is very, very, very different from equity most different from equity so you know and with different organizations having different focuses i think there's work to be done 
um, in all of those spaces with the biggest work, I think, being um, helping folks understand the differences between those things and yet how they can all funnel together toward a common goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Sphinx, you know, I, look, I looked up their vision and mission uh, statement on their website. It's we transform lives through the power of diversity right. arts. And I think that's beautiful because they don't even, you know, they, they don't even specify which lives because it's like the idea and it's something that we've talked about um, if the if everyone benefits or if I think it was talking about how like black women are perceived as like one of the lower uh, points of society. But if we mm-hmm. lift these people up, everyone would benefit from this. You know, that idea that everyone would like be. Uh, yeah, be, it would be a positive effect on everyone if we were to bring these people up. And I, I love that, that that's um, your mission and vision statement of the organization. Mm-hmm. I know I follow um, this trumpet player called uh, Courtney Jones, and he's a part of the Gateway Brass Collective. I didn't oh, yeah. know that was, yeah. is that involved with Gateway Music mm-hmm. Festival? Too? Okay, great. Because they performed at Midwest last year as a brass quintet, as a lobby performance. And I was like, oh, they sound good. Let me follow the trumpet players because I like trumpet. And he just keeps popping up on my feed. And I was like, wait, Gateway, Gateway, two plus two equals four. <laughs> and the funny the funny thing is about it is that when uh many people will see an, an all black ensemble they'll see that as something as uh, some sort of novelty or maybe even something rare when you know when you know folks like me i'm involved in things like gateways and, and other you know black centered things it is very easy to find uh, uh an all black uh quartet I'll, I'll tell a very quick story one of the uh, one of my guests early season two of triloquy uh stephanie matthews she's a contractor out in um hollywood a, a string player has a company called string candy um mm-hmm. she was involved with um lizzo's uh grammy performance i think that would have been 2019 so mm-hmm. they were putting the orchestra together and lizzo um requested an all black woman orchestra well the folks at the grammys just didn't think that would be possible it's not that they didn't want to but they just had no concept of there being lots of black classically trained musicians so of course stephanie matthews is there and because of her networks and because of institutions like gateways and and the ways that we have been connected when you go back and look at lizzo's performance at the grammys from 2019 it is all black women and is it is an orchestra just as everyone would see so you know uh understanding that these people exist I think is one of the shortcomings of the ideas of inclusion and diversity, because we talk about inclusion as if we need to find these people and include them in what we're doing when we are acknowledging that not only are there lots of black people doing this thing, many of them have aligned themselves with other black people doing those things and aren't looking to be included, aren't aren't looking for your diversity, but are looking for your equity, looking for your means of empowering black musicians and black communities of musicians. That's the biggest difference that I think we're we're missing um, when we have continued to have this this conversation. I think if everyone can really uh, buckle down and under listening, if everyone can go and take some time and understand, truly understand the difference between the words equality and the word equity, I think we can begin 
to get that critical mass of people that understand what actually has to be done at the institutional level. Diversity and inclusion is great. I don't, I don't mean to say that's not important because it, it is important. We need that. We also need a heightened understanding of what is an actual equitable practice. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And this, the, the, all, the, the all black female orchestra that Lizzo had, I mean, one thing that was just wild that was just wild to see. Like, it was just so, it was so beautiful. It wasn't wild, it was beautiful. Um, because yeah, like we knew, like I, growing up, um, we get to meet, you know, our friends, we see them out in the field. And so, no, yeah, they're, they're, you know, black female trombonists, you know, we had a Robinson on the podcast. She was a part of that thing. It was amazing. Um, I taught her experience talking about that, that performance. And it, yeah, definitely shows the fact that they said, oh, uh, that's not, is that possible? Like, are there... Right. There and, and, and there's a genuine ignorance there that, exactly. you know, we, that, that we have to, and, and that's why things like relative pitch, you know, triloquy, of course, shout out to classically black, you know, oh, I, yeah. I, I think they're the leaders in the charge when, yeah. when it comes to this. Um, that, that, that's why, you know, there's a responsibility in these outlets to really, you know, do everything we can, not only to, to give space to these conversations so that more folks know, you know, there's the responsibility of making sure that, you know, the, the content you're creating actually goes somewhere that is right. actually good content, however you um, uh, define that. And that's why, you know, I have um, transitioned. I, of course, I still play my bassoon. I actually have a, a master class to do later today, but, you know, what center uh, to my work now is that content creation because I understand the power of it. I understand the power, you know, and this is rooted back in my public radio days, but I, I understand the power of information and what it could do. You know, if those folks at, at the Grammys knew that, you know, an all black woman orchestra wasn't this impossible thing to do, you know, who knows what the next levels are when folks already have that baseline. So, you know, there, there's, uh, there, there's great privilege, you know, in, in being able to have content um, that, that helps, you know, uh, share these narratives and, and push these narratives. But there's a big responsibility there as well, especially if, you know, we actually want to see the change that we allege to want to see, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there, you know, we had during our, um, um, during February, you know, we had a composers panel with uh, Kevin Day, Ben Horn, and, you know, talking about their experience as like black male composers in this field. And you had a, you premiered a Kevin Cornelius piece, correct? That was a, a bassoon piano. Um, was it a, yeah, Sonata and every, what was mm -hmm. your experience with that? And how, how was that? Yeah, I actually need to um, reach out uh, to Mr. Cornelius and and get a good recording of that down. You know, this was back in 2013, and mm -hmm. and what we forget is that you know eight nine years ago, virtual communication wasn't even what it was. Yes, we still had cell phones and email and all that, right. but mm -hmm. not everyone had uh, cameras. You know, not yeah. everyone had recording equipment, so it was very much a email to email, you know, send this PDF sort of thing. But um, yeah, I was putting on actually a wind quintet uh, concert uh, with my then group, uh, Cooper Young Winds in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And sort of as uh, a middle, you know, we had two big works on the program. I forget what they were, but as sort of the middle thing, um, I decided to fill that time uh, with the work and I wanted to play something black. So, you know, I connected a lot of dots and, um, and, and found, uh, that work, but yeah, I, I definitely need to, uh, to, to reach out and see if we can't, uh, get that recorded, you know, e even in those days, you know, having a, a recording of your recital 
or whatever wasn't just common like and, yeah, and now yeah. i feel like most people you know at least have some access to something so mm -hmm. um yes yeah, huge huge uh huge, huge shout out to all of the black composers out here on the ground um giving giving little old folks like us something to play <laughs> right and also to think 2013 was that long ago and i I'm know oh my god working on a decade ago yeah oh my goodness Ooh. Well, I mean, this has just been, this has been amazing. And thank you so much for being here with us today and just sharing your, your words and your wisdom. And where can people find you if they want to see all, what, uh, all the fun things you have to show on Twitter and everything else? Where can they find you at? Yeah, so my one-stop shop is uh, GarrettMcQueen.com. Uh, the Triloquy podcast uh, is available wherever you get your podcasts and also at Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.O-R-G. If you're interested um, in some of my uh, radio content, uh, The Sound of 13, I have a, um, a Juneteenth feature uh, coming up. Uh, check your local public radio listings or get information um, on that again at GarrettMcQueen.com. Awesome. Make sure to go go check them out, y'all. And um, we hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, you know, subscribe, like, comment below. Give us um, some shout outs. Uh, let us know what you thought about the episode. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.